Likuti Sicha is Chelikut Ches, volume 18, the fourth Sicha for Parshas Balak. In this Sicha, we're going to get a much deeper and better understanding, an appreciation of a seemingly perplexing and paradoxical issue, a matter which comes up in day-to-day life of a Jew. And that is, that on the one hand, we're commanded, we're encouraged to have absolute faith in Hashem, that everything comes from Hashem. Yet on the other hand, Hashem himself tells us that we have to, quote, be involved in the world. We have to actually engage in, if it is earning a living, so on and so forth. So how do we fuse these two together? How do we reconcile this? So this psicha is based on the Haftorah of this week's Parsha. Now this week's Parsha's Haftorah begins in Micha, in the book of Micha, chapter 5, verse 7. So it begins in the middle of a chapter, and it ends in the middle of chapter 6, verse 7. Now, it would be advisable, in order to better appreciate the Sicha, to review the Haftorah, and in fact, just to take a close look at the end, the last story, in this week's Parsha, and Parsha's Bolak. So let's get into the Sicha. The rule is that the Haftorah of the Parsha has to be something that is connected to the theme of the Parsha. It has a connection, has an intricate connection to the theme of the Parsha. Moreover, it has a specific connection to the end of the Parsha. That means typically the Haftorah has to highlight more than anything else the last episode or the last part of the Parsha. Now, if you look at the Haftorah, there is an obvious connection of the Haftorah, very clear and obvious connection that just jumps out at you when you learn the Haftorah, and that is in, when you read the Haftorah, and that is in chapter 6, verse 5, that means towards the end of the Haftorah that we read, there's a verse that says, Ami, my, Hashem says through the prophet, listen here, my nation, remember what the king Balak, the king of Moab, plotted against you, and what and what responded to him, Bilam the son of Be'ar. So that is the obvious, clear connection that jumps out at us. However, we understand that you cannot just say that there's a connection just because of one verse. In other words, there has to be something deeper than this. There has to be something deeper and more inherent in the in the in the Haftorah which connects to the Parsha. In other words, that the general theme, the general content, the general idea of the Haftorah has to connect to the Parsha. And according to the rule, that the beginning of something, that the initiation of something, that represents the, the, the general theme, the general thrust, the general idea of the thing. Let's take a look, says the Rebbe, at the very first verse that we read as the Haftorah of the week. If you recall in the introduction, I said that the Haftorah doesn't begin at the beginning of a chapter, rather begins in the middle of chapter 5, in verse 7. So there's a certain choice here that was made by those who said, by the sages who said the Haftorahs. So what is that verse with which it begins? It says, quote, It will be the remnant of Jacob in the midst of many nations. It says, Ketal Hashem will be like the dew from God, and like the droplets upon the grass. Asher lo ish, that will not look towards, that will not trust any man, adam, 
and will not place his hope in any person. So the Haftorah, when does it speak about the Haftorah? What is it talking about here? So the Haftorah is talking about the time, the beginning of the Geula, what the Rebbe calls the Haschala Sagula, the initial stages of the redemption. Not in a time when the world is already post-redemption, meaning that Mashiach has already come, and the world is already in the utopian and perfect state, and that everybody together is serving Hashem, and there's no bad, but rather the way the Haftorah itself spells out that, quote, the remnant of Yaakov will be like a lion amongst the wild beasts. In other words, it implies and it's pointing out to the fact that it's not going to be yet the utopian time. It's the pre-utopian time. And yet he says that the remnant of Yaakov will not put his trust in anyone. Moreover, where do you see that it's talking about the time pre-Mashiach as already the last final stage of the Golos, but the beginning of the Geula, the beginning of redemption, but not yet the redemption itself, and certainly not yet post-redemption. Because the other verse says, if you review the Haftorah, you recall that it says, that, that Hashem says, I will eradicate, I will take away all the sorcery from you, all the idol worship and everything. So obviously this proves that this is not a time when Mashiach has already come. Because if Mashiach has already come, then what sorcery, what, what, what idol worship is there? There will be no bad, not only amongst the Jews, but not even amongst the nations of the world. Likewise, now we'll see a similarity, as we just ascertained, that this time, that this um, Haftorah is referring to, is a time period pre-Mashiach, but the last final stages to Mashiach, meaning the quote, the beginning of the Geula, the redemption as they prepare to go into the final, are we preparing to go into the final stage of the world and is the way it's supposed, it's meant to be? Meaning we're preparing to go into Israel in the final coming to Israel. Now we'll see the connection, the Rebbe's building over here, the parallel to our Parsha. When was our Parsha? In other words, when did it take place? When is the episode of this Parsha, the story of Balak calling Bilam to curse the Jews, and then later the story with Paor? at the end of the parasha, this all happened as the Jews are about to enter Israel. They're finally ready. It's the end of the 40 years. In last week's parasha, we already learned about the passing of Miriam, the passing of Aaron, and it's time to go into Israel. And what the verse is telling us is that even in a time when we're not yet post the era of Mashiach, similar to what they when they were there, they were then, at the time that they're about to enter Israel, as you'll see later in the Sikha, the parallel. So what the Haftorah is telling us is that even in such a time, the Jews will already be in a state that, quote, they won't trust, they won't look towards man, and they will not place their hope in any person. Meaning that notwithstanding the fact that on the one hand, the Torah itself commands us, quote, Hashem Meaning that God will bless you in all that you do. What does this mean in all that you do? So the Medrash, the Sifri says that one would think if God says I will bless you, then one will just sit back and do nothing. Sit idle and wait for the blessings to come. Says no. In all that you do. The Torah is telling us and notwithstanding the fact that Hashem will bless you and that everything comes from Hashem, but one has to do his part in bringing about the blessing. One has to be involved in the world 
and be practical and realistic in order to bring the blessing. And as the sages always told us, quote, you do not rely on miracles. So what does it come out? Think about it. On the one hand, even according to the Torah, even according to Torah standards, there is, so to speak, a place, there is room for this idea of, quote, to hope, to look for man. In other words, like just like if you're a salesperson, you hope you rely on your customer. If you're uh, if you're um, if you're a shopkeeper, you're lying customer. If you're a wholesaler, you're lying the customer. Whatever it is you're selling, you're doing. You, there is a natural course of things that you have to rely on the client. You have to rely on the people you're engaged in doing business with, right? So on the one hand, even that has a place in the Torah. And what the Haftorah is telling us is that still in all, yet Jews will be in a state even prior to Mashiach's coming, as they prepare for Mashiach, that, quote, they will not rely on man, they will not hope or seek out or, or seek the benefit of man. In other words, they're going to be engaged in nature, they're going to be involved in the world, the world's not yet going to be a perfect place, but as far as they're concerned, as far as the Jews are concerned, they are not going to trust, they're not going to rely on the ways of nature. But rather, as far as, they can, as they're concerned, as far as the Jews are concerned, they, the Aftor is telling us that they will be reliant on, on Hashem Himself, even though that they're involved in the natural course of things. Now, think about it. What is nature? Nature, in general, conceals godliness, right? Nature is godliness, really, right? But nature conceals godliness. Hashem made nature in a manner that it seems like the world is is running itself. There are gears that turn, and one thing causes another, one thing triggers another, and that's how things happen. But really, a Jew knows deeper. Now, what does this mean? We need to elaborate. What does this mean that we say, that the verse is telling us that a Jew will not rely on nature. A Jew will not hope for man. A Jew will not trust in another person. A Jew, even in a time when a Jew is still involved in a natural world, it's a natural course of things. Mashiach is not yet here. He's about to come, but he's not yet here. And the Prophet's telling us that a Jew is still going to rely on Hashem. See, it doesn't mean, God forbid, that we're going to in somehow totally, uh, you know, make it so that nature ceases to exist that the natural course of things becomes void, becomes null. No, that's not the ultimate purpose. In other words, the ultimate purpose is not to do away with nature. The ultimate purpose is to have nature, and through the nature, through it, it should become obvious that really it's God who is running the show behind the scenes. As will be when Mashiach comes, then even the natural eye is going to see that everything is clear from Hashem, as everything will become elevated, everything will become more refined. So from this we understand that a Jew in the beginning of the time of the Geula is not going to, so to speak, discard nature, is not going to discount it and totally um, uh, do away with it, so to speak, but rather, while working with nature, a Jew appreciates that truly it's really one with Hashem. In other words, nature and Hashem is one. That is the ultimate to see. Not to say that nature is separate from Hashem and has to be done away with. Not to, God forbid, say nature runs its own show, so to speak. God forbid, you know, as if it has some kind of powers. But not, neither of these two are correct. Rather, that a true uh, perspective, and this is what the, the Prophet is telling us, is that the Jew sees that nature and Hashem both are really one.
but it's one. Hashem made it, and Hashem is the one who runs it. To understand this better, to understand this concept of how it's possible that, quote, you you follow the Torah's edict of Bechol Asher quote, and everything you do, it means that you work with the world, and yet there's a perspective, there's two ways to look at it. In other words, there's two ways to approach it. You see, uh, there's one way where a Jew is appreciative of the nature, so to speak. In other words, he understands that everything's Hashem. However, he looks at the nature as, quote, the garzen biyada chaitzer, the axe in the hand of the one who's chopping the tree. In other words, he looks at it as a tool, as a means. And because it's a tool and a means, that Hashem dictates as a tool and a means. In other words, he attributes to it some kind of importance, some kind of value, as if it plays some role in his life. And that is one way. That is one approach to fulfilling this edict of the Torah that one has to be involved in the world, yet at the same time believe in Hashem. But then there's a second way. The second way is where a Jew, he uses nature only and absolutely because so tells him the Torah to do. So the Torah directed him to do. In other words, as far as he's concerned, he doesn't rely on nature at all, not even as a tool. He doesn't even see it as a, as a proper means. It's just that Hashem said that this is what has to be done, so this is what he did, this is what he does. And this we can see, this is somewhat exhibited in the saying of the sages. The sages in relation to the enumeration of the various sections of the, of the mission of the Talmud, the sages refer to the Seder, the order, of Zerayim. Zerayim is all the laws that talk about planting and seeding, seedlings and things like any, any and produce and things like that. That refers to it as some, a matter of faith. And the Gemara explains why. The Yerushalmi explains that why is it classified as something of faith? Because it says, quote, a Jew sows, meaning he puts seeds into the ground. I'm sorry, a Jew believes in God and he plants seeds into the ground. Now I ask you, planting seeds into the ground is a very natural thing. Even if you don't have a faith in God, it's going to grow. Furthermore, you can make a case that even if seeds accidentally or on their own, the wind blows seeds into the onto the ground and somehow they fall into the ground a little deeper than the surface, they're going to grow. So you see, it has nothing to do with faith, or so it seems. It has nothing to do with God in a sense. But yet, what does the Talmud tell us? What is inherent in a Jew? That a Jew doesn't just plant because he knows that if you plant, it's going to grow. Everybody knows that. But a Jew has faith in Hashem. He has faith in Hashem. By him, the fact that it's going to grow is because Hashem said it's going to grow. It's just that you have to put seeds in the ground, so you put seeds in the ground. That's what he does. So the, 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 that's, that exhibits this second way where a Jew, even in doing such a basic act as planting, as it's spelled out in the Talmud, he has faith in Hashem. That's why he plants. Not he plants and has faith in Hashem, but he has faith in Hashem, and that's why he plants. Now, this difference between these two ways of approaching this, again, to summarize, A, that you look at it, as, yes, you believe in Hashem, but you look at the means, meaning you look at the natural means as a tool, and therefore it has some importance to play some role in your life, or you totally, you don't even um, evaluate it as anything important, but the, the second way, but rather... Just because Hashem said to do it, so that's why you're following these steps. But otherwise, as far as you're concerned, everything and anything comes from Hashem. Now, the difference between these two ways of approach 
the two the two ways of looking at it is not just an idealistic or some kind of sentiment of faith. It really actually, at the end of the day, it trickles down into the practical conduct of a Jew, both in his thought, in his speech, and his action. For example, a person knows that he has to do everything that he has to do. As we said, the Torah says, do whatever you can by natural means. But sometimes you have a situation. Let's say if there's a thought, listen, if I shorten my prayers in the morning, I'm going to be able to run out and make that connection so I can do better business. Or sometimes the thought, if I give too much tzedakah, then where am I going to have money to invest in my business? You see, whenever, if somebody follows the first way of thinking, meaning that, yes, it comes from Hashem, but at the end of the day, the natural means also has a value, meaning that it's at least the value of a tool. Yes, I'm the one who strikes the axe, but the axe is an axe, and the axe has its power, and the axe serves its purpose, in the, in the example, in the idiom of, of, the, of the axe. So there, you constantly have a struggle. Then even if you overcome the struggle, even if you overcome that thought of maybe not giving tzedakah, or maybe running out earlier from the prayers in the morning because you want to run to work and you want to earn a better living, and maybe you see there's a better opportunity because of that. Even if you overcome it, but the fact is there's always going to be a struggle. It's a fight. It's not natural. It's, it's always like you have to put up a fight in order to overcome it. But when the, the true, when the approach of the Jew is, like the second way that we explained, which is that everything is Hashem. And the fact that I have to do it is not because it has any importance. It's not because it really has any inherent value. It's because Hashem said so. So then, it's never going to encroach on my prayer. And it's never going to stop me from giving more tzedakah. Why? Because I know it comes from Hashem. So if I give tzedakah, then for sure Hashem is going to provide for me. I don't have to be worried. I may have going to have less means to invest. Now, the truth is that the difference between these two approaches is not something that begins overtly. That means it's not something that is a blatant and, you know, immediately a person can become, come to a place where a person becomes clouded with worry because maybe there's importance to the natural means and therefore what if and if I don't do it then how am I, how, how am I going to get the blessing and somewhat forget and, or have to struggle with remembering that Hashem is the one provides. The truth is as the sages tell us in reference to the Yetzir Hara and his tactics how he operates the, the sages tell us quote today he says to him like this Meaning, it doesn't say to him anything negative, as we'll soon see. Tomorrow, however, meaning after time, once he gets the person in his clutches, after time, he can even tell him something as bad as, to the extent as, go worship idols, which is obviously the worst of sins. In other words, he can deteriorate to such a low, and stoop down to such a low point. Now, what does this mean? You see, in the beginning, the Yitzhahara comes to you, he won't tell you something as blatant as going against Hashem or accrediting the nature with giving you your blessing and turning you back totally on faith in Hashem. No, he won't do that. What does the Eight Sahara do? Initially, in the beginning, he says, look, even Hashem says that you have to do, you know, the natural, uh, take, take the natural course of things, that you have to do, quote, everything that you can do. And therefore, that has some importance. Do it and do it right. And, you know, do it, do it with, you know, the Torah itself attributed importance to it. So you too should attribute importance to it, importance to it. And that with time, once he gets you in his clutches, then he 
pulls you in, he drags you down to such a point that the nature is not also important because Hashem said so, but that the nature itself becomes the primary importance, meaning the natural things, the material things, the corporal things become the primary importance. And this is this is reminiscent of what the previous Rebbe explained on this on these words of the sages. The sages say, Today he tells him, do like this, meaning a positive thing. He never says, do like this. What's to do like this? Meaning, as the previous Rebbe explained, do exactly as the Torah tells you. Do exactly as the Torah tells you. It's a herder comes and pats you in the back and says, buddy, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. You're listening to the Torah. I encourage you. What did the Yitzhahara now gain? That he too, so to speak, involved in the decision making that you are now doing Torah and mitzvahs. Once he gets his foot in the door, once he gets quote-unquote involved, Slowly with time, he starts to get more involved and starts to give more opinion until he can come to a point where he can drag the person totally away from what he should be focused on, and that is on Hashem, and, and turn things around totally. In other words, the danger is just allowing the Yitzhahara to even encourage you to say, listen, the Torah tells you to work in the normal means, to go through normal means of nature, to work and to do your part in earning your blessings, earning your living, then of course, this is important. Even I encourage you, do it. Do it as Hashem says. But of course, His intention is to get involved and slowly pull you away from that where ultimately you're not doing it because Hashem says, but you're totally dedicated and totally devoted and totally and absolutely focused just on the material means and not on Hashem at all. Now we can understand the connection between this first verse in the in the Haftorah, and the way we explained it to the last part of this week's Parsha, the last story in the Parsha. What is this Parsha? The Parsha speaks about the story with Pa'or, the idol worship of Pa'or, which basically, like Rashi explains, the worship of it was that they would literally bear their backs and defecate and, and, and relieve themselves in front of this idol. And Pinchas came, and the act of heroism and the act of self-sacrifice that he exhibited in order to save the moment. Now, what is the idea behind this? Chassidus explains, what is this idea of pulling down, bearing your back, and, 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 and defecating in front of a thing? What is really behind it? Where does this come from? So Chassidus says that this is actually a derivative. This is a downward, so to speak, an evolvement, a spiraling down from the fact that people could attribute importance to the pleasures of this world, to the pleasures, to the gashmistic pleasures, to the material pleasures. Uh, you see, the material pleasures, where really do they come from? According to the way Chassidus and Kabbalah explains it, they are the psoilus. Psoilus means the trash, the absolute residue, the negative residue of the true pleasure. Now, what's the true pleasure? Spiritual pleasure, holy pleasure, the pleasure that's up there, the pleasure of getting close to Hashem. So as it evolves and goes down so many different levels until it becomes translated and, it, and, 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 and transformed into the material pleasures. So when someone attributes to that, that is psoilus, that is trash. So this idea of worshipping the idol, worshipping the idol in such a manner is tantamount to having pleasure and attributing importance to pleasure to the world. Where does a Jew come to, to such a thing? What is a, how can a Jew ever come to such a stupid, foolish thing? The answer is, like we said above, when one attributes importance 
to the material means, to the natural means of earning a living and getting Hashem's blessings. And now we could also understand better why the sages tell us that just like Pinchas over there saved the moment and served as a, to help atone for the Jewish people, so too now until Tchias HaMesim, until the resurrection of the dead, he stands and he serves as an atonement, as a guard for the Jewish people. Because this is a problem that we all live with until Mashiach comes. We always have that problem. We're always on the and the edge, so to speak, of attributing some importance to the material things from which can later trans, uh, it can spiral down into even attributing importance to the pleasures of the world, which is tantamount to this, to this um, avodazara of Pa'or. And only through Mesiris Nefesh. What is Mesiris Nefesh? Something that is beyond. Something that is super rational, super logical. I mean, it's beyond logic. It's beyond rationale. It doesn't make sense. It's something that's beyond Seichel. Only that is the means of being totally and absolutely connected to Hashem, totally and absolutely connected to the truth, thus not allowing the psolas, not allowing the trash, not allowing, in this case, the the the, the nature to take importance to take a front seat so to speak in 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 that vehicle of importance in a person's life and now we can understand why this is connected to their coming into israel why this story happened around the time that they came into israel you see while they were in the desert there was no room for this there was no threat whatsoever why because for most of the 40 years what were they eating what was their means of survival what was their means of nourishment what was their means of blessing Everything happened directly from Hashem. It was so clear and obvious that the Yitzhahara had no way of even sticking his foot in the door, so to speak. It's only as they were coming closer to Israel. And Israel, they're going to come down, so to speak, and land down on their feet in rough reality. And there they're going to have to plow and they're going to have to cultivate the land, as the Torah itself tells us. Over there, already, as they came closer to there, that's when these issues started to creep up. That's when it started to seep in. That's when the issues of attributing importance to Gashmias and thus later to the pleasures of Gashmias, which is tantamount to the Avodazor of Pa'or, that's when these issues start to rear the ugly head. What is the lesson for us? That the Rebbe says in these very last days of Golos, as we're preparing for Mashiach to go into the Promised Land again, in the ultimate coming into the Promised Land, we have to also have a me'ain, a sampling of this idea, of this concept of, quote, not, you know, relying, not looking towards man, not relying and not, not trusting in any person. In other words, we have to, even though we're involved in the world and we engage in the world, but we have to stand above it. We have to have our full and absolute trust in Hashem and total and absolute faith that everything comes from Hashem. And if anything, it's just that Hashem wants us to do this and this or that and that in order for it to come. That's the channel through which it would come because that's the channel that Hashem chose, not because it's important or inherently in itself has the power. This, says the Rebbe, when one focuses his life this way, one has literally a redemption from all worries, from all problems, from all pains. And this personal redemption, this individual redemption, will bring about ultimately, and hopefully speedily very soon, the collective redemption of all the Yidden B'mherabi Yomeno Mamash.